Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. The question of how we should act when facing something gravely immoral is a difficult one. This is particularly true when that immorality touches upon our everyday life. Such was the issue that Quakers and others faced with the question of goods produced by slaves. Was consuming goods, such as sugar or cotton clothing manufactured by slaves, incompatible with abolitionism? Could the refusal to consume such goods contribute to the liberation of slaves? In her new book, Moral Commerce, Quakers in the Transatlantic Boycott of the Slave Labor Economy, published by Cornell University Press in 2016, Dr. Julie Holcomb focuses on abolitionists who answered yes to both of these questions. In this carefully researched and fascinating study, Holcomb examines the boycott movement in the Atlantic world, focusing on Britain and the United States, and ties together various discourses on race, religion, culture, and the economy. This book is particularly well-suited for those interested in the history of abolitionism, but because of the wide variety of subjects it covers, virtually every reader can find something useful in it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Julie Holcomb about her new book, Moral Commerce, Quakers in the Transatlantic Boycott of the Slave Labor Economy. Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Oh, well, we're gr- glad to have you. Well, to start, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, Well, I grew up in a small logging town in southern Oregon. Um, I'm a fourth-generation Oregonian, actually. Um, I was the first in my immediate family to go to college. And uh, as I I remind my students, I'm, uh, you know, it took me three attempts to complete my undergraduate degree. So I always tell them, you know, persistence is an important, (laughs) (laughs) an important characteristic. But uh, life kept intervening for me, uh, but finally, when I was in my 30s, uh, my family moved to Portland, and I had a chance to go back to school for the third time. So after completing two years at Portland Community College, I transferred to Pacific University, which is a private liberal arts college in Forest Grove, which is a suburb of Portland. And so I'm having, you know, had to find this major. I was certainly history wasn't on my radar at that at that point and I was really struggling with identifying a major. I was really I was drawn to creative writing and literature, but this voice in my head kept saying, Well that's not very practical and you know, you have a family and you need to be practical um and in, in terms of careers. So um prior to t- returning to college I had worked in public and school libraries and really loved um working with with books and working with patrons, and I thought, well, maybe I could combine those interests, um, you know, that interest in libraries with my academic interest. And about this time, I'd really started to develop an interest in history. Uh, I'd taken a, an American history course with the professor there, the American history professor at Pacific, Larry Lippin, and I really enjoyed the class was not what I had experienced in high school. Um, I, you know, didn't have the uh, the best teacher in high school. And uh, 
anyway, completed that course and decided to add the history major. So I decided that, well, as I'm trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to do, you know, after I graduate, I do have to figure out something here. I talked to to Larry and, and about my interest in combining maybe history and librarianship. That seemed like a possibility working in academic libraries. And he suggested archives as a possible career path. And I thought, well, I wasn't really, I had only a vague notion of what an archivist did. So he sent me over to talk to the library director who um, then put me to work in the university archives. And and it was just, it was like this perfect match of I could, I could, do history, um, but in a very, you know, in a very, um, I guess you could say pragmatic way. Uh, I got to work in the, in the archives there for two years. And Pacific is really, was an ideal location for a budding archivist. Um, if you're not familiar with the university, it's the oldest chartered university in the West. It was uh, granted its original charter as the Tualatin Academy in 1849. And it actually began as a school uh, in a log cabin um, uh, for to educate the orphans, care for and educate the orphans of the Oregon Trail. So it has a very long and very um, uh, rich history. And so I spent, as I said, I spent two years working in the archives. And, and when I graduated from Pacific, my plan was to go on to graduate school Get a master's in library science with an emphasis in archives, and then uh, the P and then go on for doctoral work in history. So I I and with and my long range goal with that was I wanted to work in a labor archives. I had studied with Larry Lippin. I he was a, a labor historian. I had developed a deep interest in labor history. I wrote my senior thesis at Pacific um, about la labor conditions in the timber industry during World War One. So I was very, you know, interested in this idea of labor history and particularly working as an archivist within a labor history collection. Headed off to UT Austin uh, while I was working on my master's degree there in library science, life intervened again. Uh, I had an opportunity to um, take a position as a college archivist for a new Civil War collection that had been donated to a college here in Texas. And I decided to, to take that position. It was just too good an opportunity to pass up. And so I took that position, took a break from school after finishing my master's, but never really gave up that idea of going back for the doctorate and decided to, um, instead of pursuing the doctoral degree in history at UT Austin, ended up um, enrolling at UT Arlington because I, I could go to school part-time and continue to work at the museum. And so I worked at the museum or with the, the Civil War collection, which became a museum, I worked there for eight years before I ended up at um, teaching at Baylor. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Well, that's that's quite a an interesting, what can I say, scholarly pedigree. You, you've been, done a lot <laughs> of different things. Um, so could you tell us then, um, because it's it's kind of been a shift, right? Because your, your, your focus was on public history um, mm -hmm. and archives. And then you wrote a book about Quakers and uh, abolitionism and capitalism and all these these things mixed together. So can you tell us how did you come to write Moral Commerce? Well, it it actually um, it started back um, as an undergraduate student at Pacific University. Uh, that's where I first learned about the boycott um, at, while I was writing a, an undergraduate paper about um, Florence Kelly, the, the Progressive Era labor reformer. And in, um, 
in the in the biography of Florence Kelly, I I found out that her aunt Sarah Pugh was an abolitionist, and she was an abolitionist who who abstained or or boycotted slave-grown sugar and cotton, and did for years and years. She was active in the movement, and I you know and I kind of made a mental note of that and thought, hmm, that's kind of interesting. I've never heard of that, but I was again my focus was really on labor history, and so I kind of moved on from that. Well, then several years later, when I was working on my um, doctorate, I came across the movement again, this time in uh, um, Betty Fladeland's Men and Brothers, which is about the Anglo-American abolitionist movement and the connections between the two movements. And I thought, well, that's, you know, that's interesting. That's the second time I've come across that. I didn't realize that there was a British component to the movement. And so it really came out of moral commerce, came out of, just my curiosity about this international consumer movement against slavery. You know, why, why, uh, why were there so few references to it? Why could I not find a book about it? You know, I really wanted to know more. I wondered why so little had been written about the movement. And so it really came out of this sort of my curiosity because I thought, wow, this is a really audacious idea that, that somehow, you know, consumers by changing their habits of consumption could somehow bring about the end of slavery. Oh, excellent. And so, um, you know, that, that brings that segues perfectly into your introduction to your, your book. Could you tell us a little bit about what, what was it, the boycott movement? Um, I hadn't really thought about it before I read your book. What is it? Well, um, let me start with maybe, uh, maybe I should start with a little bit of uh, a definition, and that is, talking about, um, because I use the word boycott, but I use that word sort of consciously knowing that that's actually sort of an inaccurate label, I guess, if you will, for the movement, because boycott is actually a late 19th century word. Um, It's a late 19th century term that that actually referred to um, the anti-colonial protest of Irish peasants against the British landlords. It's actually the the word boycott is derived from the name of the British land agent um, Captain Charles Boycott, and it and it, it but it's in our modern language it's come to mean this you know sort of abstaining or 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 rejecting particular goods or particular services, and I use that that word in my title because it's one that I think more modern readers are, are more familiar with than say free produce friend of mine used to tease me about, you know, when I'd say free produce, she said, well, it sounds like you're liberating broccoli. <laughs> and she said, and I know that's not what you mean. So, so I use the word boycott, but in, in this sense, boycott is, is referring to um, really two distinct movements that, that form this larger boycott of slave labor goods. Initially, the boycott uh, movement focused on abstaining from the products of slave labor. This was in the 18th century, the, the, and it really originated with a small group of Quakers, including John Woolman, um, this uh, New Jersey Quaker minister, who believed that you know any benefit from slavery, um, if you benefited in any way, whether from the products of slave labor or whether the services of slaves, that you were somehow contributing to the continued oppression of Africans, that it wasn't enough to be anti-slavery or to free your slaves, but that you had to refuse to benefit in any way from slave labor. And so, and that, that idea remains, that idea remains the, you know, the heart of the movement really even into the 19th century. But what we see in the 19th century is that there's a, there's a shift in the movement and that uh, with the rise of the market, 
the shift really focuses to substitution, that is, substituting free labor goods for those produced by slave labor. So abstention still remains a part of that movement, but more and more activists are really trying to um, replace slave labor goods with those made by free labor. And so, and so what I'm looking what? at is like these two movements and how that relates to the anti-slavery movement. Right. And um, so how then so you, you mentioned in your book that there's been some work on the boycott movement before. Could you tell us how does your book deepen and add to our understanding of this movement? Sure. Yeah. Uh, and as and as you noted, there are there are some other works out there. Ruth Nuremberger um, wrote a book on the American free produce movement in 1942, a short book. And then there there's been some work done on other aspects of the boycott and both in in the United States and in Britain. But really, my book, what my book does, I I feel like my book um, contributes to our understanding of the boycott in in really three key ways. My, uh, Moral Commerce is the first book to examine the breadth of the slave labor movement. So we have works that look at, say, the 18th century um, British sugar boycott, or, or that's an a- or articles looking at that. We have studies that will look at like discrete moments, but mine is the first that really looks at the movement, um, at the full history of the movement. So I begin in the late 17th century and go through the American Civil War. And and so looking at this movement over more than 100 years of activism gives me an opportunity to look at how different groups of activists interpreted the boycott. And, and, and this leads to some really interesting comparisons. For example, we can see how women's activism changed between the 18th and 19th centuries, that it's very different. We can see also in um, the impact that... Um, black abolitionists have on the movement as well and how that movement shifts um, over this period of time. So my book is Moral Commerce is the first to really examine the breadth of the boycott. Excellent. So um, can you tell us then, you know, there's this interesting kind of connection because, the, I mean, the book's title is, is Moral Commerce, and in the subtitle it talks about Quakers. So how do Quakers get to be a part of this story? Why do do some of them come to oppose slavery, and why do they why do those people come to think that the boycott movement would be a good way to do so? Okay, um, actually, could we go back to the previous question for just a moment? Sure. Because I, yeah. I I realized that I didn't finish out my thought there. I said three ways, and I only mentioned one. <laughs> oh sure, sure, no, no problem. We'll go back. Okay. So anyway, so my moral commerce is the first to examine the um, the full history of the boycott. It's also um, I think moral commerce is really uh, in doing that, and and the way that it helps to improve our understanding of the boycott. Um, really looking at it over that 100-year period, it really emphasizes how the boycott idea has this very long history. We tend to focus on, you know, historians of abolitionism tend to focus on, you know, questions about colonization, gradualism, immediatism, these different approaches to the abolition of slavery. And, And actually, before we even had those conversations, Quakers were introducing this idea of boycotting slave labor goods. Also, and then finally, in answering that question about how it contributes to the understanding of the boycott, I think moral commerce is, is really an um, – this is coming out at an important time. We're having a lot of conversations about the connections between capitalism and abolitionism. 
and and moral commerce makes sure it interjects that uh, the consumer into those conversations about the relationship between um, slavery and capitalism. Oh, excellent. So you're making these connections that haven't uh, and looking at things more deeply. So I think that's one thing that makes this a very interesting study. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, uh, um, because it really emphasizes Ed Baptist had a book that came out a couple of years ago, The Half That Has Never Been Told, and he he um, really emphasizes the uh, the economic strength of the slave labor economy. And, I, and you take his book and you read that alongside, say, moral read that alongside my book. And it really, I think it really helps to underscore just how audacious that experiment was of trying to re- replace slave labor, say slave grown cotton with free labor cotton that, that it, they really were up against some pretty um, formidable obstacles in making that happen. And so why, as you just said that there's these formidable obstacles. So why did some Quakers think that this would be a good way to stop slavery? Well, it, it really comes out of it's it's um, deeply rooted in Quaker anti-slavery. In, in the late 17th century, you know, Quakers are beginning. There are a few individual Quakers who are coming out um, in opposition, or they're beginning to question the legitimacy of slavery, and the, and you continue to hear these individual voices into the 18th century, early 18th century, and and again, some of it, you know. It's coming out of Quaker religious beliefs about um, the light of Christ within that everyone, whether, you know, regardless of their familiarity with Christianity, every individual um, has the light of Christ within. Um, It's ideas about the golden rule, um, as well as Quaker ideas about about pacifism. All of these ideas are incompatible with slaveholding. And so you have these individual voices who are starting to, you know, speak out and speak uh, out against slaveholding. Um, but it, it's, they're very much in the minority um, in the early, in late 17th century, early 18th century. And it's not until um, mid, um, mid 18th century that we really start to see Quakers as a corporate body, that is the, the Quakers as a, as a group coming out in opposition of slavery. And a lot of it has to do with there's a you know there's a lot of um, of course we have the Seven Years' War in this period there's a lot there are a lot of political crises, religious crises going on you know things happening in this period that Quakers are really starting to um, question you know is their support of slaveholding what connection is it having with these other events is it you know is it, 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 they're seeing the their connection to slaveholding as perhaps um, evidence of their falling away from the faith, of uh, that they've lost their way. And so, um, you know, they're, they're coming out in opposition of slaveholding, and, and they're this, this small group, John Woolman, Joshua Evans, Anthony Benazay, some others, who are coming out and saying, it's not just enough. It's not enough to, um, to reject slavery and slaveholding and slave trading. We need to reject all benefits of um, of slavery, and that includes the goods and services produced by slaves. And it comes out of this this sort of this notion. The prophet Isaiah, you know, he exhorts the faithful to walk righteously, to speak honestly, and to reject the gain of oppression. So for Quakers like Woolman, 
you know, if you benefit in any way from slave labor, you're benefiting from the gain of oppression. So it's it's part of this. It's it's taking anti-slavery and taking it um, as thoroughly anti-slavery as you can be. And, but one of the interesting things about Quaker anti-slavery in this or in this period and Quaker boycotting in this period is that it's as much an anti-consumer movement as an anti-slavery movement because Woolman and others like him are are calling on consu- on Quakers to not only reject slave labor goods but to reject luxury goods as well. So it's as much anti-consumer as it is anti-slavery. Yeah, and that was one thing that that really struck me that I hadn't thought about. I just tended to think of abolitionists as just being well they're they're anti-slavery, but you showed how there was this kind of Quaker critique not only of slavery is wrong for slaves, but is um, something that hurt other people as well. And there were these this kind of economic critique as well and cultural critique. Could you, you tell us a little bit more about how those those come into the picture? Sure. Um, well, Woolman, I think, is probably the most um, exemplary of that. And that and he's and he wrote a lot of um, essays about that. His a plea for the poor, for example, he talks about. What he recognizes that you know individuals will have varying degrees of success in um, in in business or in you know that some will some will be more wealthy than others, but he sees within that 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 if you have been more successful, if you have more money, that you need that you have a responsibility to others, and that if you um, you know. If you cause others to labor excessively on your behalf, if you're um, that that you're laying this burden on these other indivi- on other individuals, and that that there should be he, he and um, Benazay, for example, both really praise the um, African subsistence economy as as exemplary of sort of this is the ideal that that there's enough for all to you know to benefit to uh, enough for all to live. Excellent, excellent. So you talk about then in chapter two how some of this this is going to get organized, right? And you're going to have this 18th century British abstention campaign that's going to be successful. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit what this campaign was and why it was so successful? Sure, sure. So so this idea that you know the Quakers had been putting forth about abstaining from slave labor goods, this sort of anti-consumer, anti-slavery movement. Um, Woolman travels to England, um, and that idea, you know, care, it, it's transferred from um, from the from America to uh, to England along Quaker lines of communication, and and it's and it's talked about, um, and it gets caught up there in the as the um, abolitionist movement begins to take off in the 1780s it gets caught up in that idea and there's there starts to in the late 1780s there's some discussion about um boycotting slave-grown sugar as as an anti as a form of anti-slavery protest and and it's interesting because this is happening at the same time that there's a lot of concern about habits of consumption and especially women's habits of consumption and you see in in the in the popular culture in this period, you see a lot of poetry, but there's also a lot of political commentary too about how much money women are spending on the new habit of tea consumption. And of course, what do you have with tea? You have sugar. And and so there's a lot of critique 
in this period about women's how much money women are spending on tea equipment, how much money they're spending on tea and on sugar. And so you have that discussion going on sort of at the same time as the abolitionist movement taking off. So in 1791, um, after an extensive debate in, the, in um, Parliament about the, um, abolishing the slave trade, the, the um, abolition bill fails. And this Baptist printer, which is interesting, it's a Baptist printer, not a Quaker printer, who um, writes a small tract called um, uh, Calling on Consumers to Boycott Slave-Grown Sugar as a way of protesting Parliament's failure to abolish the slave trade. And that little tract sets off this in, enormous boycott uh, one, we don't have accurate figures, but some estimates place the number of boycotters in 1791-1792 as high as 500,000, which is a pretty amazing number uh, when you think about it. Um, and and, and over this period of time, there's this 1791-1792. Uh, uh, there's this very rich cult, print culture that sort of develops all these tracks. Both um, in favor of um, slave-grown sugar and opposing slave-grown sugar are published. There's a, you know, really a war of words going on over, over the consumption of sugar. And a lot of that gets tied into these debates about women and their consumption of sugar-sweetened tea. And, and it's really interesting because it's, you know, women are accused of, um, you know, Sweetening their tea with bloodstained sugar, you see ref lots of references to the flesh and blood of slaves and sugar bowls on ladies' tea tables, and it becomes this sort of, you know, it's it's very much about how much, you know, how disgusting the rhetoric can be. You know, we have tales of slaves being boiled to death in in pots of um, sugar cane juice, for example, um, and but it gets caught up and all of this gets caught up in the boycott and I think that all contributes to the success of the boycott because the boycott is drawing support from people who are not just anti-slavery but it's also drawing support from people who are anti-consumer or anti-women's consumption and for women who participate in the boycott, the boycott becomes a way of demonstrating I guess their morality or their um, their ability to to forego luxury goods on behalf of the slave that that they can be these moral consumers and that and that makes a lot of sense right because wasn't there this idea that women as kind of guardians of the home were more moral at this time it's starting to develop it's starting to develop in this period but but there's still this sort of this question and you know i i talk about women as unreliable abolitionists because there's sort of this this notion that well you know will you know there's some really some concern there's some of the writers in this period are saying well women are so you know enamored with with their sugar sweetened tea and with their goods and you know with the the goods of the of the tea table and you know the tea ritual is so important to them that that will they really give up their consumption of sugar of slave grown um, sugar and and tea will they actually do that on behalf of the slave and and so it become so there is there's still a question now by the 1820s. That question's not even, it, that doesn't even come up. 
But in the 1790s, there's still just enough of a question. We're really on the sort of that transition to where we begin to see women as the center of the home. So you you discussed a moment ago how this was very successful, an estimate of maybe 500,000 people participate in this. And so in, in chapter three, you examine how Americans tried to also carry out such a, a boycott. Um, but it wasn't as successful. So what, what happened with the American boycott? Well, a part of that, a part of the failure of the American boycott really had to do with the failure, uh, you know, the compromises of 1787 and the failure of any kind of an anti-slavery movement to really take off in the U.S. the way it did in Britain. So that's, that's a, that was a, a significant aspect of it because in Britain, um, supporters of the boycott could really tap into the energy of, of the um, anti-slavery movement, of the abolitionist movement. We didn't have, in, in the U.S., that, that kind of a movement wasn't present. Um, and it really, the support for the boycott in, in the United States really remained with Quakers. It didn't, in Britain, it became very much an ecumenical movement. It was no longer just a Quaker movement. Um, the Quakers, one historian talks about in the, how Quakers staged this disappearing act, and that's certainly the case in Britain, that that Quakers were, you know, really helped to get that movement going, and they were very much involved in, in getting that movement going and keeping that movement going. But if you look at the rhetoric, say, of the of the British slave sugar boycott, it's not Quaker rhetoric. It's very ecumenical in focus. And and that's not the case in the United States. In the United States, the core of support for the boycott remains with with Quakers. And, and in this period of time with um, the rise of evangelicalism, the development of that, um, there are a lot of changes going on among Quakers and, and their... Um, in terms of they're they're being influenced by this evangelical movement, a lot of dissension among Quakers in this period, and so they're sort of distracted by all of these religious disputes, which is is having an impact on on the boycott. The boycott also gets caught up in that because you have two different factions that essentially develop in the early nineteen uh, yeah early nineteenth century. Uh, you have the Hicksites, that is, those who um, follow, who were supportive of the teachings of the Quaker minister Elias Hicks, who was a supporter of free produce. And then you have uh, another group, Orthodox Quakers, who were um, really sort of engaging with uh, mainstream evangelical ideas. And, um, and so these two groups, as they're forming, um, Free produce is supported by both. There's support for free produce on both sides of that debate, but it really becomes almost a weapon in the fight between Quakers and this internal dispute. And and so that sort of that really reinforces the idea that in many people's minds it reinforces the idea that that free produce or the boycott, abstention from slave labor goods, that this is really just a Quaker movement and that it really doesn't have any relationship to any kind of um, anti-slavery, or doesn't have much importance to the anti-slavery movement. And so that really sort of, the lack of, a, of an abolitionist movement, plus what's going on with the Quakers, sort of limits any kind of growth of, of the free produce movement and, or the boycott in this time period in the United States. 
And one other thing I, I found very interesting about this chapter was your section on black abolitionists. Could you tell us how do they fit into this whole um, abstention campaign? Sure, sure. Um, well, and, you know, and this was something that I really, I, this was something I, I struggled with a bit was, you know, how do black abolitionists fit into the abstention campaign? Because, um, you know, religion, gender, and, and race were really the three themes that I was trying to work with in this book. And, um, you know, I'd, I kept hoping I would find something, you know, about, you know, evidence of, of black abolitionists, you know, organizing boycotts or something. But, I, you know, I, what I found instead is that, that as slaves are, you know, as blacks are being freed in the north, as slavery is, is um, being abolished in the northern states and, 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 Blacks are are starting to form the, these their own communities and and they're sort of in in um, developing their own communities, developing their own organizations. That this is really the beginning of uh, what would later and what we would see later in the free produce movement with with a lot of activism on the part of black abolitionists in support of the boycott of slave labor. So you have, uh, you know, these different organizations that they form, insurance organizations, self-help groups, that all really begin to form the basis of a, of a, of a community of support for the idea of free produce. And they're linking this idea of free produce or the boycott of slave labor to ideas of racial equality, that if um, free blacks have access to, that is, that if they can benefit from um, their labor, that is, that they get to enjoy the fruits of their labor, that that becomes the basis of um, beginning to, uh, the basis of racial equality, that that, they, that can be a foundation for that. Excellent. So um, in the next chapter, in chapter four, you move back to England and the second British abstention campaign. And um, mm -hmm. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that campaign and especially the role of women like Elizabeth Hayrick, uh, the role they played in it. Sure. Um, so, eight, so we have a second, um, as you mentioned, there's a second campaign um, in the 1820s in Britain. This is the second major boycott um, of slave grown, primarily slave grown sugar. And 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 it like the first um, British boycott is quite successful. Um, again, we have we do not have accurate numbers as far as um, participation, um, but I, I know the historian Claire Midgley she she estimates the British historian Claire Midgley estimates that probably numbers were even of uh, participation were even higher than those in the 1790s. And and it really begins with um, again it begins with Elizabeth Hayrick who wrote uh, this uh, uh, wrote a track in 1824 called Immediate Not Gradual Abolition or uh, an Inquiry into the Shortest Safest and Most Effectual Means of Getting Rid of West Indian Slavery and in this in this track Hayrick connects the immediate abolition of slavery to the boycott so if we boycott slave labor goods that will bring about the immediate um, abolition of slavery. Hayrick is an interesting individual because she comes out of a Unitarian Quaker background. Um, her her father was a hosiery manufacturer. She's she's had a very interesting life. She had an un, unhappy marriage um, 
and and I I kind of question whether she might have participated in the first sugar boycott in the 1790s. Um, she was a new bride at that time, newlywed in the 1790s, so it's an entirely possible that she participated in that earlier boycott. But she, so she puts forth this idea, and it's very much an economic idea that you know that if we if if consumers would reject slave-grown sugar, that would bring about the end of slavery. She writes a number of, of tracts over the period of the 1820s. She and and she is instrumental in getting women involved in the movement in Britain in the 1820s. Uh, women are going out. They're canvassing. They're going from door to door, spreading the free produce or the or the um, boycott message. There's, they do some really interesting um, targeted appeals. So they are, they have different tracks that they use. So they'll have one if they're going to a working class household that it's sort of a dialogue um, between um, the canvasser and the uh, and the resident of the home, the woman of the home, and they'll have this dialogue with her about slave-grown sugar and the importance of boycotting slave-grown sugar. They have um, so they and and they have appeals that uh, that that so they develop these different appeals that they take and they go from home to home. Uh, Hayrick was involved in um, canvassing. Oh, I just went blank. Uh, Lester, she was and and but they they um, so they do all of these canvases and which is interesting because they're going out. This isn't among. Um, their little circle of friends, but they're actually going out to people's homes where they don't know these people, and they're go- literally going door to door, promoting the um, the boycott message. So this is very different than say what was going on in the 1790s when women might gather around the tea table and talk about the boycott and, and read lit- anti-slavery literature. In this case, these women are actually going out and talking to strangers, um, which. Uh, concerns some of the uh, the, ma- the male abolitionists, uh, many of the male abolitionists who you know find this very unfeminine um, behavior on the part of the women uh, who are doing this. But again, it's a you know it's it's as successful, if not more successful, than the earlier boycott. Excellent. So what I think is is interesting too about your your book. You know, as you're showing us how these these different people who might be in, in some ways are marginalized or are playing an active role uh, in, in these these boycotts. And in chapter five, you you really build on that, I think, by including children. Um, and I, I think that's really cool. And for our listeners, I hope you'll go out and, and buy this book. And when you get your copy, look closely at the title because it's a little um, little kind of alphabet grammar poetry um, uh, excerpt right on the front of the cover. Right. Um, and and I think that's really cool. So I wonder, um, so for example, more, the M of moral commerce, it says, M is the merchant of the North who buys what slaves produce. So they are stolen, whipped, and worked for his and for our use. So could, could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, sure. And this is really, and this is one of the interesting comparisons between, say, the British and the American movement. So Hayrick really puts forth this very, um, very strongly economic argument against um, slave labor goods, and that gets picked up and and sort of altered by um, American women in particular, who make um, the boycott really a matter of the heart, and it's about um, your the emotional response, and so it's really centered in the it's it's 
centered in the home and that women are sort of the, the, the key influence in this because they're the ones that are buying these goods. And, and so as part of that, women teaching their children um, anti-slavery, teaching them about abolitionism, or teaching them about slavery, but then encouraging children to participate in the boycott as well. So in Chapter 4, I really focus, I focus on Elizabeth Hayrick and the British abolitionist movement in the 1820s. Chapter 5 focuses on Elizabeth Margaret Chandler in the United States in the 1820s. And she's really sort of the counterpart, if you will, a much younger counterpart, but the count, Chandler is the counterpart of Hayrick. But Cham, for Chandler, the boycott really is about a matter of, of of the heart and about emotion and, and really, you know, the boycott beginning in the home and then, and then focus, um, moving outward from there. And Chandler writes a number of children's poems. It starts with Chandler and these poems that she writes, encouraging children to, to model, um, abolitionist behavior. So you have, um, poems like the sugar plums or, um, uh, Let's see, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember. Oh, Press Me Not to Taste Again is another one. And that where and these were actually later um published by Garrison in a collection of poems, juvenile poems for the use of free American children of every complexion. But the idea is that, you know, you get children to reject this uh to reject slave labor goods and they model this behavior for um for their for those around them the adults you know in one of chandler's poems the the child is given a gift of um i think sugar plums or some other sort of sweet by the grandmother and the child says oh no i can't do that because you know those were that was the that sugar was produced by slaves and I won't eat it because I don't, you know, I don't want to contribute to the oppression of the slaves. So the idea of children modeling this behavior, and and then the the alphabet book that you referenced, that's a later publication from the 1840s, the anti-slavery alphabet, and a number of the letters in the alphabet actually reference slave labor goods. So again, teaching children about uh, slavery and abolitionism and the importance of rejecting rejecting slavery not only slavery but rejecting the goods of slave labor and and that and the and it really points out i think the participation of children in this movement really points out how democratic this movement really is that that anybody that you anybody can participate by simply rejecting the idea was that anyone can participate by simply rejecting the the goods of slave labor and that and that children could do this as well. This was something that could be practiced by children as well as adults. Right. And yeah, I, I just, yeah, I, I don't know. I always find that uh, particularly fascinating. So I, I guess maybe because I teach courses where I, I sometimes look at children's cartoons and, and literature and things like that. And it's, to me, that's fascinating. And I, and I love the poems. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, um, so far we've been discussing the proponents of um, of the boycott movement. But some abolitionists thought that this was a bad idea. So I wonder, um, and you explore this in Chapter 6, if you could tell us a bit about why some people um, linked abolitionism with free produce and thought this was a good idea, but other abolitionists said, no, no, this is not a good idea. Well, and and Garrison was among those who um, opposed free produce. He came out initially in support of it, 
Um, and, you know, you would think with Garrison's emphasis on moral suasion that, that, that you know, he would be an automatic supporter of the free, uh, the free produce movement, that is, of the boycott. And he did initially, um, but he very accurately, you know, I think, recognized just how difficult this prospect, you know, the prospect of the boycott, um, really how difficult this would be. And he felt that, um, Garrison in particular felt that, you know, abolitionists get so caught up in this idea of free produce and boycotting everything. And, and, you know, as he says at one point that they, that they spend so much time trying to find free labor goods and to avoid the products of slave labor that they think that they've done their job, that they've done enough. And, and, um, and, and it's not, it's not enough. You know, there's so much more to be done. And he just, he came to believe that it was really an ineffective tactic. And the more he protested against free produce as an anti-slavery tactic, the more he became a target of, um, you know, Sarah Pugh and some of the others who supported many of the others who supported, um, supported the boycott, you know, they're looking at him and they're saying, but, you know, his example would, if if Garrison would embrace, embrace the movement, then everybody would embrace the movement. And, um, you know, they really lamented his, his lack of support for the movement. But really it came down to he felt like there were just so many other things and there was so much opposition to abolitionism that that this was just a minor uh, minor movement and a minor tactic, if you will, in the anti-slavery movement, and and it was just too difficult. It was really, really, and it and he's quite quite correct in that that it's very difficult. It was very difficult to avoid anything produced by slave labor. Those who supported the boycott said, yes, you know, they recognize that difficulty, but they said we still have to try. It's you know, it's a matter of ideological consistency. How can we come out in opposition to slavery if we're continuing to benefit from slavery, and even if indirectly? The, the, the thing I wonder, too, just as a kind of side question that just came to mind, um, I studied Korea, and when Korea was a colony of Japan, they, they tried to have like um, a buy Korea movement. And uh-huh. um, so similar, right? So you wouldn't, you would only buy goods made in Japan and the problem or that were made in Korea. And the problem was there was sometimes some corruption where, where Korean merchants would buy something from Japan and change the label um, mm-hmm. and try and sell, pass off as something Korean. And um, they, they had these constant problems. Did, did that ever come up here? Oh, absolutely. And, and it was, you see that a lot in with um, George Taylor, who ran, who was really probably at the forefront of the movement in the 18 from the 1840s through the 1860s in terms of uh he ran a free produce store in Philadelphia through that period and and you see all of his efforts to try and 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 identify and locate free labor goods and there's a, there are a number of letters between Taylor and um he had an agent in the south by the name of Nathan Thomas and then his brother Thomas Taylor also um worked as an agent for him in the south trying to find free labor goods, free labor cotton in particular. And that was, and, and it's interesting because in these letters, you know, he'll, they'll, um, you know, they identify someone who's growing cotton and yes, you know, I can, you know, this person and this person and this person can certify that they're not using slave labor, um, that these true, that this is truly free labor cotton. So yes, there was, there's a, there was a lot of trouble with corruption and identifying, you know, is this indeed, um, you know, 
goods produced by free labor. The other problem that often happened, particularly with sugar, was um, even if you could be assured that the goods were free, uh, free labor goods, the quality might not be there. Um, for example, abolitionists tried to substitute maple sugar for cane sugar. And, and maple sugar is on, it's an imperfect substitute for cane sugar. It, it, you know, it's got a taste that, a very distinctive taste. Um, it's too moist for some, um, some purposes in cooking. And, and so even if you could find a free labor substitute, it sometimes it wasn't, um, it wasn't, uh, it was an imperfect substitute. Right. Yeah, I guess some things don't change. So, um, <laughs> the, that so what you've talked about um you know american uh the american movement you talked about the british movement um each met with varying degrees of success but it makes sense that people then would try and start an international boycott movement mm-hmm. um since you have these you know these two you know crosses the atlantic and you look at this in chapter 7 why did this not work out though well you know, some of it came down to some of it. Some of its personality. <laughs> um, you know, you've got some very strong personalities on both sides of the Atlantic. That's part of the problem. Um, and you know, and part of the problem is again is the the growth of the um, you know of the of the dependence on slave labor goods. You know, Britain is importing um, an extraordinary amount of slave grown cotton from the South. Um, it's getting abolitionists, other abolitionists to support the boycott who are not supporting, you know, they're not supporting the boycott at this time. Uh, they try several, both British and American abolitionists sort of, you know, they try a number of different, um, tactics. The American Free Produce Association is organized in the late 1830s with an idea of increasing supply. And yet, you know, they're, they're constantly struggling, um, to get enough supply, um, to be uh, getting to get enough goods to supply their consumers, um, oftentimes you know the, you know they can't get enough cotton. Um, it's a very minuscule amount of cotton when you compare free labor cotton. You know you may be talking hundreds of bales versus you know the compared to the, the you know the number of bales that are um, of slave grown cotton that are available that they just can't begin to supply um, the world demand for free labor cotton you know for cotton. And, and so supply is a big issue here. You have um, British abolitionists and American abolitionists, too, to a lesser extent. You know, they look at India as a possibility, um, you know, and, but India has its, own, has its own challenges as well. And there are questions about, you know, the, the labor conditions there. But it, it just, um, supply becomes, supply is a significant issue, but then it's opposition within the movement that, you know, they, there's an attempt at the World Anti-Slavery Convention in 1840 to pass a free produce resolution that is calling on all abolitionists to, um, to use only free labor goods. And and it gets watered down, and and it's basically it's passed as you know well we'll use free labor goods to the extent that it's practical, but they don't ever really define what is what that what is meant by that by as practical, and yet even as the movement sort of faltering on the international stage and in, in America the the movement is 
in in the in like say Ohio and Indiana and, and some of the more western states you know it's starting to pick up there's actually some new organizations formed there and and so you know like Taylor in Philadelphia is trying to do his best to supply keep those um those organizations supplied Taylor even goes so far as to open up a cotton mill trying to produce his own cotton but he just he can't meet the demand Right. So these um, these practical challenges they face are immense. And I think it's interesting then that chapter eight, you um, you subtitle or I'm sorry, you entitle it bailing the Atlantic with a spoon. So um, my question is, why did you choose that as your subtitle for this chapter? Well, and it's really in this because this period is I'm looking in this chapter, I'm looking at the period of the 1840s and 1850s and and. And it really is at this point they're having such tremendous challenges with not that that they never they've always had challenges with supply, but in particular in this period the the whole all of these supply problems these very pragmatic problems really become quite acute and and it really is um, Samuel J, that's actually coming from Samuel J May who who compared the free produce movement to, uh and it in the abol- uh, in the fight for the abolition of slavery it, um he compares it to bailing the atlantic with a spoon that it it is in his mind it's so weak and it's so ineffectual that you might as well be bailing the atlantic ocean with a spoon and he, and in a lot of ways he's quite accurate um going back to Ed Baptist's book there's a, a an excellent discussion in there about what he calls first order, second order, and third order effects of slavery. So first order effect would be the co- the crop itself, say the cotton crop. And then the second order effects of slavery are the money, that you know, it's the economy that's driven um, to supply the plantations, to supply cloth for slave, uh, to make slave clothing, the hose, the, the tools that are used by slaves to produce cotton. But then third order effects are those that come when... Um, those individuals who are who are working and producing those goods that supply the plantations, those individuals then use their salary to go out and purchase goods and services, and so that's the third order effect. And um, in his discussion, Baptist talks about in 1836. I think it's something like 50% of the American economy is tied in some way to slave labor through these first, second, and third order effects. And that becomes even more, you know, that that continues in the 1840s and 1850s as, um, you know, slaveholders are moving west and developing um, cotton plantations, um, you know, as far west as as Texas, um, you see slave-grown cotton in it, and that is becoming such, um, slave labor goods are such a part of the um, global economy that it really is, you know, for, for, um, boycotters to think that they can replace all slave labor goods with free labor goods. It really is like bailing the Atlantic with a spoon. So with that being said, I mean, this is just the, the challenge that the boycotters faced mm-hmm. um, to end in this, um, you know, and, and it's, it's in, at least in the case of American slavery, it's not through the boycott that it ends. It's, it's through the, the civil war. Right. What then is the significance of the boycott movement in Atlantic history? Well, I think the significance is, and and I really uh, what I think, where I think it's significant is that it that um, the boycotters really forced 
consumers to confront. They made slavery an inescapable question. Even if you didn't support the boycott, still by making clear this connection between between um, consumers and the, their purchases and the and the continuation of slavery, that by making that you know making that connection so clear that that they made slavery um, very much an inescapable question that we had to that you know that that your purchases would um, you know that your your purchases you know, it may seem like they don't have an impact but they do have an impact. Um, you know, they made this connection between. I th- and I think. Well, let me let me back up and and try that again. You know, they they made it clear that even in the north, in the so-called free labor north, that that consumer purchases there and consumer activities there were still continuing slavery in the south and were responsible for continuing slavery in the south, and and. And so, you know, they really, every purchase, every action that you make in the market becomes a moral, um, a moral transaction. You know, it has moral significance. Do you buy, you know, those goods that are sweetened with maple sugar or do you buy those goods sweetened with cane sugar? Um, Going back to Sarah Pugh, you know, she wore linen rather than cotton because linen, uh, linen was a free labor good. And so she continued to wear linen even after the Civil War because it was free labor. And, and, and she felt that she had to continue that practice. And so I think that's the significance of the movement is that they really forced consumers, regardless of their stand on slavery, really forced consumers to um, sort of understand the, the, mora- the morality behind their purchases. Well, excellent. Well, that, that's something we should certainly always be reflecting on. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed uh, reading this book. I've enjoyed talking with you. I know we've taken a lot of your time, but I'd like to take a little bit more time to ask our final traditional question. What are you working on now? Well, um, I am working on actually a biography of George W. Taylor, um, the free produce activist that I mentioned um, in working on moral commerce, I I found at Haverford College um, the fam- Taylor family papers, which turned out to be have turned out to be quite extensive. And um, Taylor was involved in a lot of other things besides free produce, but that's really the only thing that he's known for is his work with free produce. He was actually involved in temperance. Um, he was involved in Quaker reform movements. He was involved in the peace movement. Uh, quite an interesting individual. Uh, his family was quite involved with his free labor business as well. And so that's what I'm working on right now is um, is a biography of Taylor. Well, excellent. Well, well, thank you very much. That sounds like a fascinating project. And thank you very much for your time today, Julie. Thank you. This has been the Christian Studies Channel of the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Franklin Roush of Lander University, the host of the channel. I want to thank you for listening to this interview, and I hope you'll come back and listen to another one soon.